You're listening to The 66, a podcast as a part of the ministries of the Asheville Road Church of Christ. Probably the best podcast that uh, Asheville Road puts out right now. Seeing as Number one. Yeah, seeing as how it's the only one I think we put out right now. But um, we're here. Uh, Drew Kaiser is our minister at the Asheville Road Church of Christ, and I'm Andrew Kingsley, uh, the youth minister here. And uh, we've put this out. We're trying to go through all the books of the Bible and give you just a basic rundown of what they are, what they're about, and what they really mean. And we've got our podcast broken up into three sections. Uh, the first section we read, and that's pretty much where we just give you an outline of our text for the week. Second section we think about our text. We kind of go deeper into the text and pick out some things that we think are interesting and also really of vital importance to understanding what we're reading. And then the last section, uh, which we've entitled Think, we like to uh, apply it to our situation today in Christian life. So we read, think, and apply is how we do this. And uh, what we've been going through, this is our second episode. We're in Ezra chapter 3 is where we're going to start. And then our context of the, the whole thing for this quarter is Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And what we're looking at is the restoration of the people of Israel. And we're going, uh, last week we talked about uh, Ezra 1 through uh, 1 and 2. We just talked about Ezra 1 and 2, and we talked about the return to worship uh, with the people being brought back to the city of Jerusalem. And today we're going to look at the heart of that worship, which is the temple. The temple, as you know, is the, the focal point of, the, of Jewish worship to God. And what we're going to look at this week is how they restore that temple, and in the grand scheme, we're looking at the restoration of worship here in the Book of Ezra, uh, as well as the restoration of the law. And then, uh, when we get to the Book of Nehemiah, we'll look at the restoration of the city. When we get to Esther, we'll look at the restoration of honor to the Jewish people. But here this week, we're in chapters three through six, and the uh, really the outline of this doesn't lend itself to an overly neat outline because there's some chronological... perfect for us. Yeah, it's good for us. It gives us a lot to talk about, I guess. I think I think it's perfect because it's a, a ready-made excuse. Mm-hmm. If we blow this, well, you know... The, the, <laughs> On the, the off chance. The text doesn't lend itself to a neat organization. Yeah, that's a good point. So I probably shouldn't have said that, you know... Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, but but anyway, that's that. It is what it is. Yeah. So if someone's not happy with our outline. It's not that they're not happy with us. They're just not happy with the text itself, right? Yeah. So it's not our fault if you don't like our outlines. Um, but we will. I think the best way to break this up, and the way I try to do it, is uh, we're going to base this on chronology, and we're going to look at that through the eyes of a few different rulers of Persia. And so we're trying to go at this from the angle of Zerubbabel to begin with. Uh, so what Zerubbabel would have been doing here in these few chapters in restoring worship, the place of worship, the temple, he is going to uh, see the rule of a few different Persian kings, the first of which is Cyrus, which we covered last week, and that's our first point. Cyrus is going to be ruling uh, from chapter 3 and verse 1 up until chapter 4 and verse 5. Uh, That's the reign of Cyrus in the book of Ezra. Um, And so what we want to look at, starting in chapter 3, we have Zerubbabel under Cyrus. We're still in the first year of Cyrus at the start of chapter 3. And that's going to be 559. Is that right? 559, 558. 
Um, and this thirty. Is, I thought it was five thirty-nine. Okay, five thirty-nine. I've got a typo here in my notes. Then, um, either way, maybe I've got that confused with another ruler. Uh, but we're still in the first year of Cyrus, and this is when uh, he's going. Zerubbabel and this guy Jeshua are going to rebuild, rebuild the altar. Um, and you can find that in chapter three, verses one through seven. They rebuild the altar. They go ahead and they offer some sacrifices on that altar. So they've already got a place in Jerusalem where they can make sacrifices to God. And you can see how worship, true worship, is being restored. Um, let's move on to verse 8. Uh, here in verses 8 through 13, they're going to rebuild the foundation of the temple. Now, this is not the entire temple at large. This is simply the foundation. Um, they're going to lay this down. But when we get to chapter 4 we're going to meet some opposition. Or rather, Zerubbabel and Jeshua are going to meet some opposition. And it's not going to take them long to meet some opposition. Uh, when you get to chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 3, they have some people come to them and ask them if they can help, but Zerubbabel tells them no. We'll talk more about that in the second section. But for the sake of outline and making this quick, we'll go straight to verses uh, 4 through 6. If you start in verse 4 of chapter 4, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So right here in this one verse, we have moved forward a lot in the history of the world. Right here with Persia, we've moved forward a great deal from Cyrus all the way to Darius, uh, and then even down in verses 6 and 7, we're going to move all the way to Artaxerxes. Um, this is going to be several, several years in the history of Persia, going from um, Cyrus and Cambyses down to Darius, uh, nextly to Xerxes, and then finally to Artaxerxes. We're going forward several years. Um, and the point here that the author is trying to make, that Ezra, uh, who we know is the author, that he's trying to make is they faced a lot, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of opposition. Um, there's a break in the narrative, which gets kind of confusing right here in verse 6. So if you want to, if you want to read this from a chronological standpoint, when you get to verse 5, you can go ahead and pause and read this next part as kind of a parenthetical. Um, is what these scholars call an excursus. Um, and I'll read to you a quote uh, from Brenneman. This guy has written a commentary here. He says, The mention of Darius in verse 5 looks ahead to chapter 4 and verse 24. So that would mean that everything in between verse 5 and verse 24 is a parenthetical, which means it's not a part, it doesn't fall directly into the chronology. It's not necessarily in order here. Um uh, continuing on with this quote from Brenneman, the author actually only took up the opposition to the building of the temple again in chapters 5 and 6, which refer to the events in the reign of Darius. The reset of chapter 4 refers to later opposition, not to the temple building, but to the building of the walls under the reign of Xerxes and Artaxerxes. However, the author included this to stress his theme of persistent opposition. So we'll come back to this more. We can discuss it more in the second section, I guess. But let's go ahead and for now and say we note that chronologically we're going to skip here all the way to verse 24. 
Yeah, you use the the term parenthetical. That's mm-hmm. the most helpful for, for me. And if you're a person who writes in your Bible, just put like an open parentheses in front of verse 6 and a closed parentheses at the end of verse 23. And that might help your brain a little bit understand that's something that Ezra was reminded of as he's telling the story. It doesn't occur within the narrative. And we'll talk about mm-hmm. some of the cues and proof of that later. But that, that'll help you not get confused by the mention of two kings that came way outside of the lifetime of Zerubbabel mm-hmm. in, uh, in Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes. Those guys did not live during the lifetime of Zerubbabel, and so this has to be what Ezra is doing. And, you know, mentioning also that Ezra did not live during the lifetime of Zerubbabel. This is mm-hmm. written by Ezra, but he doesn't come alive in the text until chapter 7. Mm-hmm. So that helped me when I started to realize, hey, this is the work of a historian writing about things that happened, you know, decades before he mm-hmm. existed. And so, of course, he's going to remember things contemporary with him mm-hmm. and to illustrate with them. Oh, yeah. So I this is think par- parenthetical that. is the, the word mm-hmm. I like, and you used that a minute ago. Just put that in a parentheses and, uh, you know, start start back over chapter 4, verse 24. Like you said, chapter 5 picks back up with it. Yeah, and so it kind of goes like this, for the sake of simplicity. Uh, you've got rebuilding begins at the start of chapter 3. And what does Zerubbabel do? He rebuilds the altar, which we kind of just skimmed over. Mm-hmm. These are really big occurrences. We're not going to stop and talk about how big of a deal they are because we're trying to get through this, just the outline of the text. But the rebuilding of this altar is a very big deal. The worst, A place of sacrifice in Jerusalem has been restored. You can go and research more and more on that on your own. We'll try and cover a little bit of it in the next section as well. But first they rebuild the altar in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Then the foundation of the temple in chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. And then you have opposition coming along in chapter 4. We get to verse 5, and if you want to, you can read it like this. I'm about to read verse 4 and then verse 24. So after all this great building has happened, we get to verse 4. The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So now here we are in chapter 5, where uh, Haggai and Zechariah are about to uh, again motivate or inspire, I guess is a better word, uh, Zerubbabel and this guy, Jeshua. They're about to inspire these two to take up... The high priest, right? Mm -hmm. Jeshua, the high priest. Yeah. They're about to inspire these guys to come back and and start the building again, even though it has ceased, as we just read in chapter 4 and verse 24. Um, So we get here to Darius, and we're in in, um, sometime in the ballpark of 522, is that right? We're we getting closer here. Am I good on yeah, my dates well, with this one? Yeah, I think so. Second second year of Darius, uh, my my works that I consulted, five twenty. So basically, okay. what I worked out is that in in the gap that you just yeah. described, there is about sixteen years. You could put you could think sixteen years between chapter four, the progress that had been made by chapter four and chapter five. So uh, this thing, the the temple, was only a foundation 
and an altar, and they were using it. This is the restoration of worship. They were burning mm-hmm. sacrifices. Chapter 3 describes morning and evening sacrifices. They celebrated the Feast of Booths. We know that. Mm-hmm. But no walls on the temple. It was kind of a disgraceful thing, a humiliation, mm-hmm. to have just part of the temple. And I think about some things that began in you know our community before the housing bus and the construction bus in 2007. I remember you know there were a lot of projects, construction projects, that were begun and then just ceased. And that was an embarrassment to the builders. Mm-hmm. And then I think about, um, you know, I go visit other countries like Russia and Peru. And in those places, there are a lot of projects that had been begun and then just ceased right in the middle of the project. And what do you think about the people who stopped the project midway? You don't think, well, those are really responsible people that got their act together. You think, yeah. those are people who didn't know how to plan. They didn't know how, in the words of Jesus, count the cost before they built the tower. They you know, went into it and uh, had to stop in the middle of it because they weren't very responsible people. And this is what the Jews were looking like by the beginning of, uh, what is it, chapter Mm 5. So now we're like in the reign of Darius. Uh, 16 years or so have gone by, and they've been doing nothing. They, You know, we assume they've been worshiping, but the temple lay in ruins, and that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why Haggai and Zechariah come in you know, they have to... Zerubbabel's a good man, but those prophets are needed to come in and say, this isn't what you were sent to do. you got to do more. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, and so we've got, like you said, we've got the temple that is not finished. It is, we have the, we've got the the foundation, but like you said, it's just, it's just kind of there's really a reminder of, hey, the temple's not built. You know, it's, it's something that's, Certainly, uh, and actually, uh, back in chapter 3 and verse 12, you've got some people, some of the older generation, are actually weeping in a loud voice uh, when the foundation of the house is laid, uh, when the foundation of the temple is laid, because they're kind of, I guess, a sore reminder of, hey, this used to be here, and it's not here now. So, yeah, as time goes on, it's definitely going to be a more painful reminder. So after this 16-year gap, we're here in 520, here comes Darius, um, there, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the high priest, are motivated again to start building the temple in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Now, in verses 3 through 5, this guy, Tatanai, who's a governor, uh, comes in and asks them, they basically question them, uh, who gave you authority to do this? No one told you you guys could start doing this. What are you doing? And so um, what they do, uh, if you look down in verse 5, this is what uh, the people, the Jewish people decide to do. Uh, But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So basically, they could not be forced to stop until uh, some sort of correspondence was made with the king, and then the king comes back and says, you have no authority, you have to stop. And so Tatanai's next move here, um, who as we can see later, he might not be necessarily coming to them with an attitude of, I really want these guys to stop. Looks like he might be just coming from an honest way or an honest standpoint of, do you guys really have authority to do this? He's just checking them out. Uh, because he sends Darius a letter, and you can see that in verses uh, 6 through 17. And you can see from this that uh, the work was going uh, pretty well for the Jews. In verse 8, at the end of verse 8, you see this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. 
So they're doing a good job. A lot of work is getting done efficiently, apparently. And uh, if you keep reading, the Jews are going to appeal to a proc- the proclamation of Cyrus uh, and say, back uh, in the day, Cyrus told us we could build this. Tatanai then uh, suggests that Darius go back and check on this and see if this actually happened, which Darius does. When we keep on reading, Darius finds out. Uh, if you start reading in chapter 6, in verse 1, you can see that Darius is going to make a decree. He goes back and they find out that Cyrus did make this decree. And so Darius is now going to defend the rebuilding of the temple. In verse 6, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, uh, this name I cannot pronounce, Shethar, Bozani, and your associates who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. And he tells them to uh, to help them build, ultimately. Um, and so in this decree in verses 6 through 12, they now have license to rebuild the temple, and Tatanai and those guys end up having to help him or help them. Uh, you can read in verse 13 of chapter 6, Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. So once Tatanai found out that this was okay, yeah, with all diligence, to the according to the king's word, he helped them in every way he was supposed to. Uh, I that, wonder if he would have had to pay those taxes if he had just kept his mouth shut. <laughs> you know, Probably so he, he, you know, he notices their building. This is what troublemaking gets you into. Yeah. Tattling. I need to use this as maybe a devotional for my kids and our family devotionals. Because this, this guy, I, I was just noticing this. He tells on them. Mm-hmm. Hey, Darius, the Jews are building a temple. Now you put a nice you you put a nice uh, spin on Tatanai. Yeah. Made him look like a nice guy. Maybe he was, yeah. uh, but you know Darius got the letter, looked around, found the decree from Cyrus. Oh yeah, there is. Keep away is the first thing he says in mm-hmm. verse six, and then he and then he yeah. says, <laughs> um, moreover, and this is the part of the letter that Tatanai starts to groan about. Mm-hmm. Um, the full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the provinces beyond the river. That's Tatanai's territory. Yep. I'm going to tax you, and you're going to pay for it now. And I wonder if, you know, privately, Tatanai kind of rolled his eyes and thought, what have I done? So kids, being a tattletale does not pay. That's that's a pretty good point. I'm actually writing that down <laughs> as we speak. Uh, so yeah, he ends up, the provinces beyond the river end up having to pay the taxes on that. We'll talk more about where those provinces are in the next section. Odds are you probably already know where those are, though. Okay, so now the temple is finally finished in chapter 6 and verse, uh, right there you can see in verses 13 through 18. It's finally going to be finished, and then they're going to celebrate the Passover right there at the close of the chapter. So now the temple is finally back in Jerusalem, which is one of the biggest events that we're going to see happen in the restoration of Israel. We can talk more about that in the next section, but the temple is the place where God says he dwells. And Darius talks a little bit about that in his decree, um, the place of the God of heaven where he pleased himself to dwell. Uh, This is, for the Jews, it is their heritage, it is their culture, it represents God himself, which is why it's so blasphemous when someone enters the temple that is not holy enough to be in there. So the temple is finally back in the 6th 
year of Darius, which is going to be 517. I hope that my math is right. Um, so chronologically, that's right. It's close. Yeah, okay. So, so yeah. 517 is going to be the sixth year of Darius. Now, um, rebuild. Now we're going to back up to chapter 4 and verse 7. I know we're probably getting close to time here for our first section. So we'll go through this quickly. So now once we get through, the temple is finished. Temple's done. Now back up to chapter 4 and verse 7. This is where this part comes in chronologically. It's going to come after the events that we've, that really you read about in the book of Ezra. This is going to come, uh, or excuse me, up to chapter 6. This, what we're reading here, is going to occur after, in history it recurs after chapter 6. I hope I'm making sense. Um, so Artaxerxes is going to come in. We skim over Xerxes in, in verse 6 of chapter 4. This is the, the famous guy with uh, Thermopylae. He reigns in 486 to 465. Uh, this is the same Xerxes with uh, Esther. We'll cover later. Um, then we have his son, Artaxerxes. He's going to rule from 465 to 424 B.C. This guy is also called um, Longimanus. Longimanus. You ever heard that before? No. Um, I discovered that in one of these comments. I don't know how to pronounce it. It comes from a Latin. Uh, long is the first part, and then manus it's the last. It means long hand, long handed, uh, which probably has something to do with his reign, his arm being long. You know this idea of uh, lots of territory. Yeah, that sort of an idea. I don't know how to pronounce it. I tried to find a pronunciation on the internet, could not find one. So longimanus or longimanus, whatever you want, is fine with me. Um, so what's interesting though is during Artaxerxes' reign, he was faced with an Egyptian revolt. It was a pretty serious revolt. It was a major challenge to the Persians' control. And so any sort of letter that Artaxerxes is going to get from an area that's so close to Egypt, like Jerusalem is, any sort of letter that Artaxerxes is going to receive about a possible uprising, Artaxerxes is going to be forced to take very seriously. And uh, you can see what they accuse the Jews of. Uh, when you look at the letter that they sent to Artaxerxes, look in chapter 4 and verse 12, uh, you can see in the second part, they are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. So they're calling it a rebellious and wicked city. Look in verse 13. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll. The royal revenue will be impaired. And if you go down to verse 13, you will find, or verse 15, excuse me, you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from old. This is why the city was laid waste. Now that probably was in the record books. Yeah, and it was in the record mm-hmm. books. More specifically, it was in the Babylonian Chronicle, uh, uh, where they yeah. record... A lot of their dealings with Jerusalem, even down, they get as specific to listing the food rations for their captives. Uh, most famously, Jehoiakim from Second Chronicles yeah. chapter 36 and verse 9. Well, I felt like I just cut you off. Were you about to no, say no, something? No, no, I, okay. I, I remembered reading that at one time, that they had those food rations. They treated mm-hmm. Jehoiakim pretty, pretty well, yeah. considering that he was captive. Mm-hmm. Not so much with his uh, subjects. Oh yeah, taken captive. Yeah, but the uh, Babylonians had, you know, from their perspective, suffered long with the Jews, and the Jews. It is perplexing when you read the end of Chronicles or Kings, why they continued to rebel. 
Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they would put a new king, you know, puppet king in there. Obviously, Babylon was many times more powerful than the Jews, and they would rise up again and form mm-hmm. alliances with Egypt and stuff. And So this is what these propagandists are referring to here. Uh, they are describing, though, I believe, a very different Judah or Israel mm-hmm. from from the current one, the present day one. They're they're talking about a whole uh, pre-exile people and those people are very different from the post-exile people. Oh yeah, most certainly. And I like the word you just used, propagandists. They're trying to, really I guess they're trying to scare Artaxerxes. Maybe they're scared themselves. Uh, I I don't really know. But either way, if you're the king of Persia, and you have this big opposition coming at you from Egypt, and now here's this major city uh, fairly close to Egypt, uh, and these guys are coming to you saying, hey, they're rebuilding the city. Look in the history books. These guys, are they're going to rebel against you. They're not going to pay taxes to you. Um, as the king, really, I guess his logical decision here is, well, I need to put this on hold. And look in verses 17 through 22, uh, he does put it on hold. In verse 21, Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease and this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? So he's concerned. Uh, these these guys have done a good job making the king concerned. He is concerned and he puts it on hold. Um, and now Artaxerxes will enter the narrative again in chapter 7. Uh, you can read right there at the beginning of chapter 7, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's going to be for our next episode of the podcast. So basically, in a nutshell, we've had, at the start of chapter 3 to now, we've got the altar being rebuilt, the foundation being rebuilt. We have some opposition come in. We have the prophets Haggai and Zechariah motivate Zerubbabel and the high priest Yeshua again to rebuild the temple. Uh, Tatanai tells on them, then ends up having to pay for them to rebuild their temple and then later on in the reign of Artaxerxes, uh, building is stopped once again. And so we're going to get to chapter 7 in our next episode, but that is pretty much the basic outline of chapters uh, 3 through 6 of the book of Ezra. Good job on the names. So we are starting our second section of the podcast, which is where we we think about it. We've read, we've outlined, and we spent a lot of time outlining this week. And now we're going to think about all that stuff we just outlined, hopefully in uh, less than about two hours. Uh, But uh, the first thing I want to bring up has to do with this really complicated, well, it's really not that complicated, but with the chronological issue in chapter 4. Uh, where we talked about the parenthetical, if you draw parentheses in your Bible at the start of verse 6 of chapter 4 and open parentheses and then close it, uh, as Drew mentioned down there at the end of verse 23. Um, There's something interesting here in the Hebrew uh, that happens that gives you a clue to the fact that this is not within the main narrative of the text. And what that's called is a narrative frame. It's like just like a parentheses might look like a little frame that you put something inside of. That's what that's what this uh, I guess this title is used here to illustrate. It's a frame, 
And the frame is found in verses 7 through 10, where they list all of the people involved. You can see it's going to list uh, Bishlam and Mithradath. Uh, it's going to mention uh, Rehum and Shimshai. It's going to mention all these people, um, the great, uh, these people that serve under the great and noble Osnapper. Uh, <laughs> all this stuff going down. That's how you pronounce that, right? Osnapper? The great and noble Osnapper. Yeah, everybody knows the great and noble Osnapper, which I believe is Ashur Banipal. That's his other name. Oh, yeah. But either one of those names is horrible. To try and pronounce, <laughs> so don't go listen to anything else about this because you'll probably hear the, pronec- pro- the where, correct pronunciation. Where is it? I'm... This is verse ten. The rest of the nation, oh, okay, to the great is. noble Osnapper, deported. So you have all these people mentioned here, and then if I you think look, it's pronounced Osnapper. Oh, yeah, that's it. That's how we'll pronounce it every time we mention. Need to edit that out. No, we're keeping that. We're not editing that out. All right, verse uh, twenty-three. Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Nahum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in uh, to the Jews at Jerusalem. They went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem by force, and power made them cease. So, you have here this little cue in Hebrew where you have the mention of the names at the start, mention the names of all of these uh, associates here when they're listed at the start and listed at the end. This is a narrative frame that indicates a beginning and an end. For more on that, talk to someone that knows a lot more Hebrew than I do. Um, the next thing I want to mention... Wait, I want to add something. Okay. Um, along with that, in verse 6... Well, we talked in our last podcast about how the entire book of Ezra begins with this conjunction mm-hmm. that's translated in some translations, it's not in others... Uh, in the New American Standard Bible, which is a very literal translation, the first uh, word of the book of Ezra is now. Mm-hmm. It translates that conjunction. Now, that same conjunction begins verse chapter 4, verse 6, and chapter 4, verse 7, which to me sounds a little bit like to illustrate. You know, uh, it, So, he didn't just b- begin that cold, but you have this little um, introductory particle, uh, now in the reign of Ahasuerus, verse 6, and in the days of Artaxerxes. So I would put that along with what you just what you just said as another cue, and I, mm-hmm. we're going to a lot of trouble here to, to prove something. It really doesn't need to be proved. The main mm-hmm. point we're trying to say is there's not a problem with the chronology of Ezra 4. Mm-hmm. Ezra knows good and well that the chronology of the kings of Persia goes Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, Artaxerxes. He knows that. He's not saying that Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes or Xerxes and Artaxerxes served before Darius. He's just Mm -hmm. saying this story that I'm telling right now reminds me of something that happened in our own day under Xerxes and Artaxerxes, and I'm going to use that example from my contemporary day to mm-hmm. illustrate. And you gave a hint of that, and and I, you know, hopefully have done mm-hmm. as well. I think there's some cues in here to tell us that is exactly what this historian is doing, the scribe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are definitely cues that this does fit. And no, we don't think that anybody's going to lose their salvation over knowing whether or not that this is a parenthetical, that it's not in chronological order here. But 
it is important for someone because you can take someone who doesn't realize this and they can lose they can lose their faith. There are people that will read this and say, "Well, they have these rulers out of order, mm-hmm. so the Bible's not right." So th- this is exactly the kind of thing that atheists call a Bible contradiction. Mm-hmm. And 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 in every case of an apparent Bible contradiction, there is a perfectly reasonable explanation. Mm-hmm. And we're just giving you one of those here. It's mm-hmm. important. It's not important if you're not reading very carefully. But this podcast is about reading closely and knowing what's going on mm-hmm. as you go through the books. And so that's why we're, we're talking about it. Yeah. It may not be the most exciting thing in the world, <laughs> but it's pretty important stuff. Yeah, it definitely deserves some discussion. Um, also, let's let's go to the beginning of chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. We just blew through this in the first part, but something happens here that's also worth mentioning. Uh, now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esar Haddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now, General scholarship here is going to agree that these people asking to help are the Samaritans. Now, the days of Esarhaddon, which are mentioned there in verse 2, Esarhaddon was the king of Assyria who came in and uh, he's going to conquer Israel in 722 or 721. Uh, That's about 150 years prior to where we are now. What the Assyrians did is they removed 90% of the Jews and inserted uh, other conquered peoples into the land of Israel as a way to discourage revolt. So what they they conquer them, they take 90% of the Jews out of their homeland, put them elsewhere, they're in exile. While they're away, the Assyrian government inserts other conquered people into their land as a way to discourage revolt. Because now all the Jewish people are not together in the same cities, talking about how bad they hate the Assyrian governments and how much they want to revolt. So now, but you notice that these are people who worship God as Zerubbabel and company do. They say, we worship your God as you do, and we've been sacrificing him ever since the days of Esarad and king of Assyria, who brought us here. So these are people who have now, they do follow God. They are, and what scholarship believes is that these are the Samaritans. Uh, but they're, And the Samaritans, of course, you'll find uh, the Samaritan woman uh, that Jesus interacts with. Um, they're people... Thought, Which is how her fathers worshipped. Mm-hmm. God on Mount Gerizim. Yeah. Um, she said the mountain, but yeah. it's usually understood as Mount Gerizim. Do you really think they're sincere? I'm, I'm reading this trying to make a decision on that. It sounds like you believe them. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm I, a big fan of the man Ezra, and he writes, yeah. you know, when he starts it, he says, now uh, the children, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin mm-hmm. heard, he starts out and he calls these people adversaries, the adversaries yeah. or the enemies of these people. When they came, these enemies said, let us help you. Now why mm-hmm. would Ezra say the enemy said, let us help you, unless maybe he didn't believe that they really wanted to help? Yeah. And, and you know, you got Zerubbabel and Jeshua, pretty smart guys, the governor and the high priest, saying, nope, you have <laughs> nothing in common with us. You're you're mm-hmm. you're not who you say you are. 
So maybe e- either, I'll tell you, it's either that the Samaritans, who weren't known as Samaritans by, at this point, but these yeah. were their ancestors, mm-hmm. either the Samaritans were lying or Zerubbabel and Jeshua were being, you know, jerks. <laughs> and and maybe it was a little of both. But I will tell you this, mm-hmm. um, this policy that these rulers, these empires had of deporting the population and moving other peoples in... Mm-hmm worked and we see the evidence yeah. of it because that temple would have built been built a lot sooner if they had not removed the Israelites from the north from the northern kingdom and displaced them and put these other people mm-hmm. who turned out to be the Samaritans later in yeah. now to your point though you know the Samaritan woman did confess belief in the Messiah and Jehovah in John chapter 4 so evidently they did know something about Jehovah God mm-hmm. and did know something about uh, the Messiah and the Hebrew scriptures and worshiped them in some way. Uh, so there was a lot of, uh, you know, infighting, a lot of, uh, that's not the word, but a lot of adversity between mm-hmm. the Samaritans and the Jews from this day forward. But the Samaritans obviously had some kind of faith in Yahweh. Mm hmm. Uh, even even then, there there must have been just a kernel of truth to it, mm-hmm. but from their behavior that followed too, yeah. they weren't interested in that temple going up. Not really. Yeah, yeah, that that definitely seems uh, to be the case here. My my final thing I'm going to mention uh, is this idea. Let's go to chapter six. If there are uh, anybody, if there's anyone listening to this that enjoys like. I don't know, maybe action movies or, uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know what, I guess what I'm looking for here is you'll, you'll see when I read it, I guess. (laughs) Um, when you read chapter six and verse 11, this is Darius saying, look, uh, Tat and I, you guys need to do whatever it is that, uh, Zerubbabel needs. Y'all are going to help him out. Your taxes are going to pay for them rebuilding their temple. Um, let's look at verse 9. Whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day to day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Now here we go in verse 11. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put a hand out to alter this, or to destroy the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So, wow, yeah, he makes a pretty impressive threat. Now this is... I'm going to tear down your house and kill you with it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm going to kill you with your own house. (laughs) Yeah, kind of like our... uh, our idea of beating a guy with his own shoe. Like, this is way worse. But yeah, a lot <laughs> worse than that. Yeah, you're not just going to get bruised with a shoe. You're going to be impaled by the beam of your house. Um, we're looking at some great photos here that I've got from um, a guy's notes on this uh, about where this, um, I guess, this idea of impaling came from. Now, what they used to do, there's some pretty uh, graphic, gross stuff here. That I don't want to read that I'm pointing out to Drew right now. Whoa. So he can, yeah. 
Uh, some pretty gross stuff that they did to make sure that you would be impaled. You got that in Bible class? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty uh, graphic stuff. It's rated R. Yeah. Uh, so we're not going to read this out loud. Uh, if you want that, you can ask Drew about it later. Maybe he'll give it to you because I won't. Um, but we've got, we're looking at some old reliefs here, uh, and it looks like a, a painting of some sort. Um, a picture is what this used to be like. It sounds exactly what it is. They would impale you. They'd put you on a stick. And hold you up. And sometimes you would survive, depending on how they did it, which are the details we're reading here. Uh, you could, it could take days for you to die. As many as three days, depending on how they impaled you. Where the post went in and where it came out. Um, they would, uh, a little bit of this is, if they wanted you to be dead or live as long as you could on a stick, they would impale you to where the stick would come up and your jaw would rest on a blunt edge, not a sharp edge, but a blunt edge, so you could hold yourself up, and you would survive for about three days, and you'd die. Uh, this is a precursor to crucifixion, and it sounds maybe a little bit more uh, gruesome, definitely a little bit more uh, graphic to read about, but this is a precursor to crucifixion. This is where the Romans are going to get their idea for crucifixion, which is relevant for obvious reasons, but it's a pretty, uh, pretty hefty. This, when he yeah. says you're going to be impaled on it, that's not something like, too. yeah, it's not just like we're going to stab you with a spear and you're going to die. I just, I, you know, the whole idea of using the the ceiling joist of your own house to do it. Yeah, that, you know, if they these guys spent a lot of time thinking up ways to new ways to torture people, and yeah, that's that's pretty clever. Uh, now, the reason the Persians did this, uh, they had a religion. Their main religion was called Zoroastrianism. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was very ritualistic, and it believed, among other things, that the ground was sacred and that the most defiling thing in existence was a dead corpse. And even more than that was the dead corpse of a criminal mm-hmm. or a wrongdoer. So they went to great lengths to make sure that dead bodies did not come into contact with the soil, hmm. which is very different from our culture, in which we and the Jewish culture, in which we bury our corpses in the ground. Yeah. That would be something that that's a huge no-no. That's defiling mm-hmm. the the sacred by doing that. They also believed fire was sacred, so they couldn't burn their bodies, and uh, mm. so they would do a number of things. One is impalement. Um, now they wouldn't do that to people that they respected for them, for them they built these towers way up into the sky and they would uh, deposit the, the bodies in the tops of the towers hmm. and allow the birds of prey to come and feed on them and hmm. that's how they disposed of them without defiling fire, water, air uh, without defiling the earth and then uh, once it was just bones they would take the bones and put them, you know, inside the tower. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, it's a lot of trouble that they would go to, but they yeah. really believed this stuff. And that's how impalement was invented, which now the Romans, they didn't care anything about, you know, defiling the ground. They wanted, yeah. they used crucifixion to show their power and to humiliate the victims. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that a lot of that was involved, too, with this, you know, I'm going to tear your house down and use the beam of it <laughs> to impale you. Yeah. Uh, there was one thing I wanted to mention. I didn't want um, our listeners to miss the significance of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And I want to bring them up because it's probably going to be a long time before we get to that podcast. 
These are two of the minor prophets often overlooked. They are listed together near the end of the catalog of the minor prophets in your Old Testament. And I'll just say this about them, that they fit within the time period of this part of the book of Ezra, about 520. And God raised them up for one purpose, and that is to make sure that the temple got built. It lay in ruins for about 16 years, and in 520, second year of Darius the Great, here they come together. They work together, Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai's prophecy is four months in the year 520. And uh, you know that because it's organized that way. You know, chapter 1, verse 2 says the first day of the sixth month. And then uh, you've got uh, chapter 1, verse 12, the 24th day of the sixth month. And that's the way the book is organized. And it's just Haggai very plainly saying, rebuild the temple. This is an important work. We've got to restore the worship the way that is in the law of Moses. Uh, Now, Zechariah, he took a different approach. And Zechariah is highly figurative full of uh, visions, uh, about eight visions in there, very strange, some of them, and that was his way of reaching the hearts of the people to inspire them, and and it must have worked because they rebuilt the temple, completed it, and I like this line that was written in chapter 6, verse 18, that they um, appointed the priests and the Levites as it is written in the book of Moses. And I'm, I'm sure that was the force behind Haggai and Zechariah's preaching. And I'm sure Jeshua also stressed this. But, you know, Jeshua and Zerubbabel, they're at fault here for this 16-year lapse. Um, they let the opposition get to them. And Haggai and Zechariah, I believe, are the ones that said, you've got to do this because this is what God's Word says. Do it as it is written in the book of Moses. So I, I just want to bring those prophets up because... They're so far away in our Bibles from the book of Ezra that a lot of students don't think about, of course, if they read Ezra, they see the mention. Those books go with this. And if you're reading, some people read the Bible chronologically. There's a Bible on the market. um, Mm -hmm. It's a chronological Bible, one-year chronological Bible. And I'm sure in those Bibles, you've got Ezra, and then after chapter 6, you've got Haggai and Zechariah, or maybe they lace them together even better than that. In application... You know, I just want to go back to Ezra chapter 3, verse 12. This very interesting scene in which the people are celebrating the completion of the temple. No, I'm sorry, not the completion of the temple, but the completion of the foundation, the building of the altar. And for the Mm -hmm. first time, people are sacrificing in the city of Jerusalem. First time in in 70 plus years. And like you said, Andrew, it, it was a big deal. Uh, the title of the lesson is the restoration of worship. The um, the restoration of worship is completed with this, and we move on to the restoration of the law with the next podcast. But um, you know they're shouting and praising. But in, in verse twelve, Ezra tells us that many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, and the word house there means temple 
wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud with joy. And Ezra said, if you had been there, it would have been hard for you to distinguish the sounds of joy from the sounds of sorrow. And it's very important that you understand that the younger generation was the one celebrating Mm -hmm. and the older generation was the one weeping. Why? Because those in the older generation, there were some men who were old enough to have lived through the entire captivity and remember the temple that Solomon built that was now totally demolished and gone. You can go back to the books of... uh, kings and chronicles to read about that temple. It must have been a a sight to behold, Solomon's temple. And these old men, they remembered it, and they saw this small, this this tiny, you know, uh, foundation, and it brought them a lot of sorrow. They realized that they would never see the temple of their childhood again. Now, it's always amazing to me when I see a foundation of a house it always looks so much smaller than the house looks once it's finished. Mm -hmm. So I think on top of it actually being smaller, it was just a foundation. Mm -hmm. And so there may have been some of that involved. But they noticed something, and it was something real. And as I said in the last section, you know, Zechariah and Haggai are contemporary with this. And they both make a comment about the reaction of the people or the reality of the size of the temple. I'm going to start with Zechariah's comment over in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10. Whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So he's saying, and, and I think the King James has it in the form of a question, who has despised the day of small things? But here he said, whoever is weeping now, This is the prophet, you know, he's walking out in the midst of all this celebration. I see him saying to these old men, you guys who are weeping and crying, you're going to rejoice. Mm -hmm. Your sorrow will be turned to laughter. Now, why? Haggai answers the question. Here's Haggai's version. This is Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? He's speaking to these old men. You know, mm-hmm. who, who, which, which of you remember this? I see hands go up, you know, tears going down their cheeks. It looks like nothing, doesn't it? But then mm-hmm. he continues on, and in verse 9 of Haggai 2, he says, The latter glory of this house, the temple, shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace. That is shalom, says the Lord of hosts. So he throws something unexpected at them. How many of you are weeping over this? Who's crying? Who's who's upset about it? Go ahead, be honest about it. Raise your hand. You know, and so mm-hmm. all these old men, you know, are weeping. And Haggai comforts them and he says, I'm gonna tell you something. Here's prophecy, the word of the Lord, the latter glory of this house, the future. Mm-hmm. is going to be greater than the former glory, greater than Solomon's temple. Now, he mm-hmm. can't be talking about the second temple. By the way, uh, I want to throw this out in the last section and think about it. 
But we're looking here at the beginning of what is called by historians the Second Temple Era. Mm-hmm. Now, First Temple Era, that's uh, you know the time during Solomon's reign through the divided kingdom. Then it's destroyed. You got captivity. Then you got the Second Temple Era, which leads up to the time of Christ. Some people look at the Temple of the Days of Christ as the the Third Temple, but really it was just um, Herod the Great's development of the Second Temple. Right, he added mm-hmm. all those oh, yeah, courtyards yeah. and all that stuff. He uh, it embellished the second temple that was started by Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Haggai, Zechariah, and all these people. Mm-hmm. So that's the temple that was standing until seventy A.D. when the Romans came and destroyed it. And there's still a part of that temple standing in Jerusalem today. It's called the Western Wall, and uh, you can go to it. And it may be on one of the outer walls of the temple, not something that was built by these people, or maybe it was. But the Jews still go and pray at it, and they uh, write their prayers on pieces of paper, roll them up, and stuff them into the cracks of the wall. It's a very holy place. Mm-hmm. And if you want to look it up, there's a webcam that's trained on the wall night and day, 24 hours a day. I don't know the website, but you can go to mm-hmm. it. And it's pretty interesting to watch the people and how they behave in front of that wall. It probably was very interesting last Saturday, uh, yeah. being Passover weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the stuff that's going on there. Um, so anyway, I, I want to talk about this. How, in what way, was the latter glory? You know, it wasn't even in Herod's day. Mm-hmm. And this is a prophecy of something more than bricks and mortar. And uh, some people say, well, he's talking about you know maybe, uh, you know, the significance of the second temple, or you know maybe not the physical walls, but the spiritual application, but I I think he's thinking more in terms of the spiritual temple, the body of Christ, the church. You know, the church is called the temple in in various places. 1 Corinthians 3, I think verse 16 is one place. Uh, We're told that the Spirit dwells in us as a church. Ephesians 2, 19 and following, we're the household of God, in other words, the temple of God. 1 Timothy 3, 15, the house of God, that is the same language used here. House, temple, dwelling place for God. God dwells in his people now. And the glory of the church, and this is another subject of the book of Ephesians. You can look at Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Glory to God in the church. Uh, the glory of the church is not something to be overlooked. It's more glorious than even Solomon's temple. And that is the fulfillment. It gave these old men something to, to lift their spirits up. Their best years are ahead of them. God still has magnificent hidden things in store. And so that was an encouragement to them at that time. A way for them to dry their eyes. There would be peace. The likes of which they had never seen before. Mm -hmm. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful promise that you find when you put all of these texts together. uh, Ezra, Haggai, and Zechariah. Mm -hmm. That makes me kind of wonder about, I guess... You know, the way that we conduct ourselves as the church, you know, we are supposed to be something that glorifies God more so than even Solomon's temple. You know, that's kind of a sobering thought, I guess, because with all the faults that we have within, you know, the, the church is not our building. We're not saying like our church buildings here are supposed to be more glorious than Solomon's temple. We're talking about the people that make up the church and if we as a people from our actions the things we do 
the way we conduct ourselves, the way we reach out into our community, the way we reach out into the, really the world at large, I guess, we're supposed to have those those works that we do are supposed to make people stop and be in awe of God even more so than like just this really immaculate building. You know, because I guess for us it makes a lot more sense to, if you go to downtown New York and see the, the Empire State Building, you know, you're going to think, wow, you know, it's a really cool building, you know, whatever, it's really tall. Maybe you'll have a, a very high opinion in your mind of the guy that made that building. Uh, like that, well, let's take the Lincoln Lincoln Monument or Washington Monument, any, any one of those monuments in, in Washington, D.C. or elsewhere. You know, those things instill in you, you know, Abraham Lincoln's huge in that monument. And so you're thinking, well, this guy must have been pretty awesome. You know, if you have a, someone from another country come in, I'm sure their opinion of Abraham Lincoln is just sky high because we have this giant statue of him, you know, built out of honor and respect. Well, this Solomon's Temple produced so much more honor and respect in God himself than, you know, the, the monuments that we have today. But our church, the way, when I'm just trying to think of, the way that we act, you know, the way that the people, that we carry ourselves, like when someone sees me walking around outside of this, you know, outside of this office, or even when they come in this office or whatever, are they thinking, wow, the the God that that guy serves is incredible. The God that that guy serves is awesome. Or they're thinking, man, that guy, the God he serves is, is not any good. You know, he won't do this, he won't do that, blah, 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 or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a, I guess it's a, number one, it's very sobering, it's very humbling, and number two, it's a huge challenge. I might do a sermon on this, I'm going to write this down. Um, yeah, it's a huge, enough. yeah, it's a huge challenge to everybody, to, hey, the way you live your life needs to be more impressive to people than Solomon's Temple. I mean, Solomon's Temple is a legend, yeah. you know, so it's... That that's pretty cool. I'm not yeah. even gonna mention what I was gonna mention now because I'm off. <laughs> that yeah. that was a really good point you made. A really good point. Well, it, you know, it just goes to show you every book is about Christ. It doesn't matter if you're reading from the Old Testament or the New Testament. It all points to Christ. And here, Haggai is showing us how the second temple relates to Christ. It points to Christ in that though it is lowly, like Christ was the carpenter from Nazareth. This second temple was humble, yet mm-hmm. its glory greater than the former. Yeah. Now, next week, or end of this week, I shouldn't say yeah. next week, next podcast. <laughs> next episode. We're going to go forward about 80 years into the actual lifetime of Ezra, picking up with Ezra chapter 7, which begins the next part in this series of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther the restoration of the law. Thanks for joining us. If you want to contact us, you can email Andrew at akingsley at arcoc.com. You can get me at dkaiser at arcoc.com. Look us up on the internet at the66.net. 66 is the number. And we'll catch you next time.